I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. How long can a grapevine live, including the root systems? If you look at cuttings as extensions of the original plant, then in one way, every single Chardonnay vine on the planet is an extension of the original Chardonnay plant. So looking at vine age this way, through cuttings, it seems that grapevines can live indefinitely. But once a cutting throws roots, the vine begins what we think of as the plant's natural life cycle. Most vines have life cycles similar to the length of a person's life cycle. In the first few years of a plant's life, the vine doesn't produce very much quality fruit. It's putting much of its energy into establishing a strong root system. You start to get some decent fruit once the vines are 6 to 12 years old, and then the vines start producing more and more mature fruit as the years go by. Winemakers usually prize the fruit from vineyards in the 30 to 45 year old range. Vines that are 100 years old usually produce much less fruit, but the fruit is often prized as making more complex wine due to all the unique things you'll find in the grapes that come most likely from the complex root systems. Old vines also have an easier time ripening fruit usually because the plants are balanced and established. And they've had a lot of practice. We don't see too many vineyards with 120 plus years on them. And this is partly because many winemakers will replant older vineyards to increase productivity or to change clones or change a vineyard layout. And Phylloxera wiped out a lot of old vineyards around the world about 120 years ago. But there are a few interesting old vineyards with plenty of age on them. These vineyards can often be found on sandy soils where Phylloxera has difficulty surviving. Many vineyards planted on sand were spared phylloxera outbreaks over the last century. And many regions that don't yet have phylloxera boast some incredibly old vineyards. Vineyards older than 300 years produce some of the most moving wines in Chile. On Santorini Island in Greece, root systems between 3 and 500 years old 
produce some of the most incredibly dense and flavorful acerticos. And Australia has several of the world's oldest vineyards dating back to the mid-1800s. Langmile's Freedom Vineyard produces wine from vines that date back to 1843. Shilda State's Maruru Vineyard was planted in 1847. Other vineyards dating back to the mid-1800s include Henschke's Hill of Grace and vineyards at Turkey Flat, Ilumba, Torbrek, and many others. Unfortunately, phylloxera drastically changed the vineyard landscape around the world, and most wine regions lost regular access to old vines. Today we have just a few odd examples of how really old vines work. And phylloxera wasn't the only thing that decreased old vines. Several prohibition movements around the world have, have wiped out uh, winemaking industries all over. Today, we have just a few odd examples of how really old vines work. And here and there, you'll have individual vines that have become historic landmarks. In Slovenia, a Zamatovka vine that is over 400 years old grows on the side of a building, and it still produces fruit. At Katzenzungen in northern Italy, an acclaimed 350-year-old vine grows in the vineyards. In England, at Hampton Court Palace, a vine transplanted to the palace in 1769 still grows there. And in 2001, this old vine produced 845 pounds of fruit. Though grapevines seem to live lives that mimic the timeline of an average person, they have the potential to live much, much longer. What can we learn from these ancient vines? Will we find that after a certain time period, grafts give out and cannot continue delivering efficient nutrients for after a century or so? Could there be an entire set of aromas and flavors that are only possible to get from vines once they pass the 200-year mark? Will we learn that as vines transform the nutrient content of the soil by continually pulling from it, that a single vine has the ability to adapt to soil changes over centuries? What is the long-term effect of ancient vines on water tables? Are old vines merely relics? Or can they help us with vineyard planning as we plant the future vineyards that may make wine for the next few centuries? I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard to source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Victor Irutia of Kune on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much, Levy. Thanks for being here. Very welcome. Thank you. So you run a Rioja 
firm in Spain, but mm-hmm. how did you get there? It was originally your Uncle Luis. Well, it's a, it's a family company. I'm part of the fifth generation. My father never worked at Cune. He was always um, involved. He's on the board of directors since he, was, uh, in, since he was in his 20s, I think. Him and my Uncle Luis. And at one moment in time, I think they decided that Luis would, would manage the business and my father was doing his own things. What was your father up to? Like, what were he's he was very industrious. He, funnily enough, he worked in a in a Coca Cola bottler in in Spain, which in wine circles that that's a big no no. But it's he had a good time, and it was a fun it was a fun thing to do. He actually he retired from that just a couple of years ago. He was a vice chairman of a large utility in Spain as well, and he was on the board of different companies. So he's a, he's a sort of very industrious businessman. I think that's that's our, that's probably how he would like to be remembered. You know, he's still alive, of course. But and it yeah. sounds like his brother was a little different. Well, his cousin actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, not, oh, okay. No, you're right. Sorry, uh, the, Luis is actually my second cousin, my second uncle. He Got wasn't. It. So there's Just actually like very there's few multiple us. labels at Cune. Yeah, it's all confusing. <laughs> it's nice to keep you on your on your toes. But it's um, no, my my father unfortunately has has no brothers. It was his his cousin. In fact, his only cousin who was involved in Kune. And he was managing Kune since the 60s, late 60s, until, until 2003, when he kind of decided to retire. His health wasn't doing great, and I guess he'd had enough. You know? So he spoke to my father about this, and my father, he had too much on his plate, and he didn't want to do it. He thought um, somebody else should do it. So he, he called me and he said, would you, be, would you be interested in doing this? And at first I said no. I, 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 didn't want to, I wasn't sure I wanted to work in a family company. I thought it was just too much. You're like, I already got allowance from you for several years. <laughs> now I make money on my own. I yeah, don't have you know, to I, clean cars or nothing. Exactly. You know, I was single at the time. I was working in Brazil. I was having a great time, you know. And, and Say no more. <laughs> I was single. I was working, making good money in Brazil. Yeah. And then my dad wanted to ruin my life. It sounds like I was this big playboy in Brazil. It really wasn't anything like that. I was going to this office and working long hours. But, you know, I was... It's nice to be sort of without any responsibilities other than, you know, your your day job, yeah? And you were how old? I was in my 20s. I was 20, must have been 28, 29. Well, anyway, he asked nicely at first. I said no. And then he just insisted in the end. said, listen, you, you got to do it. It's a family thing and you got to do it. There's nobody else. So, and I think that was it. You know, there's nobody else for the job. It wasn't a case that I was the best person or anything. But um, my brothers were younger than me. They were a college, most of them. My uncle Luis, he has daughters that are younger as well. There's just nobody else available, I think. Because the thing about Kune, we're actually fifth generation. On our side of the family, um, there's actually very few people left. And uh, other other branches of the family, there's many more of them. But on our, on our side, there's just few of us. So we were really scraping the bottom of the barrel here. That's how we pick presidents in this country. <laughs> we usually just really no one wants to do it. Well, well, no, seriously here, there wasn't any jockeying for the job because there was, there was just nobody there. Yeah, um, And the, the trouble with these family things is just, you know, you go to work and you have good things and you have bad things. When you go home... The work doesn't go away. Yeah. And then you go and have you go and have lunch with your parents on a Sunday, and they ask you. So, I was in a restaurant the other day. They had no kune. Like, oh, <laughs> please give me a break. You know. How many times have you had that conversation? Every time. Yeah. It's, it's every time. <laughs> yeah. You know. And it's. Can't you know. think of anything else to say? To me? Right. Um, and the, 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 it's just it's 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 hard work. You know. Uh, so I didn't want to do it, but he insisted, and in the end, I said, "Fine, I'll do it for a year." Yeah. Um, which I did. One and year. I signed a contract for a year and then the year expired and I signed another contract. And we did that for a few years. And the end, I said, listen, let's just continue. 
because things come up and you just continue after one after the other. And, and, and it's been 10 years now, 10 or 11 years, because I joined in 2003, the very beginning, and I was still in my 20s. I remember that. I started at Kuna, I was still in my 20s. I don't know if I know much now, but I certainly didn't know a hell of a lot back then. But there was quite a few things to do. You know, I, I, I found a company that I think had what I thought were good wines and a, and a good technical team, but really eccentric management. I mean, most of the guys that, that were at the company, I guess the, the, the senior positions in the company, they'd been there. I was born in 73, and these guys had been there since before 73. So they really looked at me like, you know, <laughs> there's nothing that you know that I don't. You know, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting situation. But it, but it was fun. Yeah, it, was, it was all right. I had a good time. And what did your Uncle Louis spin like as a dude? Like, what was he up to during the well, 60s, 70s, 80s? The thing about, the thing about Luis is that I think his, thing, his, his passion was wine and making wine and tinkering at the winery. That was his thing. Yeah. Um, when he came to the US, it wouldn't be to come and see the importer or the distributor. He would go to Napa to visit wineries. He has this great story, Luis, that he met Robert Mondavi I think it was in the late sixties and, um, he, Mondavi picked him up at the hotel and said, let's go and have breakfast. And they stopped at a, at a grocery store. I said, can I borrow a couple of bucks to go and buy some eggs? So he never paid back those couple of bucks. <laughs> so he, he, it was that kind of guy, you know, he loves the stories about wine, but, but the actual business of selling wine, you know, the, how much is the discount and how much is my AMP? And he, he didn't go for that at all. He, he wasn't into that. And in a sense, I think it's a good thing because when you when you don't have that sort of commercially astute or aggressive mind, you don't you don't do things that perhaps you might regret at a later stage. You don't do funny wines, you know. You don't do sangrias, and you don't do you, you don't do stuff that you that you're not happy, that you're not proud of. Yeah, you, know? you don't change to the whims of the market. You don't change to the whims of the market. A and and B, you don't you, you don't do products that sort of undersells what the company is about. And we've been around for a long time, and and. Every so often we think, let's do something new and different. But really what, what survives and what produces is, is what we started out doing. Yeah, that, that's, those are the things that are good, I think. What are those things? Well, explaining Kuhn is complicated, so I apologize in advance. But basically, we started 1879 in Aro, in Rioja Alta. So for those of you who know Rioja, this is sort of the northwest corner of Rioja. And it's where most of the wines in Rioja started in the 19th century. There's a couple of others. There's, of course, Riscal in El Ciego, which was founded before us, 1855. There's a couple of others. But I guess... Do they still look at you like the new kids? Like when they drive by, like, ah, oh, these guys. They, they, well, not really, because they've, they've changed ownership many times. Sure, sure. There's actually only three wineries in Rioja that are still in the same family from those days. And it would be Lopez Aradia from 1877, La Rioja Alta from 1890 and Cune from 1879. Those are the only ones, and we're all together in the same place, we're neighbors, and those are the only ones that, that, that are still in the same hands, which I guess is a romantic thing, but also has some, I think there's more to it than that, yeah? Well, you get to know something, like a piece of terroir. Exactly. What you're doing. Or- and in the end, what I think we're good at, we, we have, we're fortunate to have good vineyards and we have good people, but what we have, I think, which is good, is that we have them. Um, the routines, the way we do things. You know, that we have a lot of wine in barrel, always. And, and it's just, I think, of course, if I left Cuned tomorrow, I'm sure there'd be zero impact. You know, somebody else would come in and do the same thing. But the winemakers, those are the ones that count. The winemakers and the people in charge of the vineyards, 
they've been there for a long time and they have teams that will continue afterwards. So basically when, when a new person comes in, the first thing they get, it's like learning to fly a plane. They get told that the 50 different procedures that we how we work. And it's just a case of, of improving that. But we, we don't really invent the wheel at all. And it, I guess it makes it sound less, less, less attractive, the fact that it's all procedures. But in the end, it is. Yeah? I think for us making wine, it's doing 50 different things in the best way possible all the time. Yeah? Just continuing. You know, don't, don't, uh, what if I change this? Well, it's good to, to innovate and do stuff, I think, and to bring technology into the winemaking if it allows you to make it better. We, we have a clear opinion on that. But it's always following the same kind of route. Yeah. All our barrels, they have a similar age and we renew them, but we have the same sort of barrel age. All the wines spend minimum two years in barrels, sometimes three. In the past, sometimes they spent even longer. So if somebody came in and said, oh, we've got to make a red wine with that barrel, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't be allowed to do it because we, 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 just, we just don't do that. Yeah. In that sense, we're not innovative at all. Yeah. We, we don't really do that at all. But in a way, that's a contrast for a lot of Spain because what we saw in the maybe late 90s, 2000s was a lot of people were moving in the other direction of like, yeah. hey, let's change this up, right? I mean, right? And a lot of people are planting Cabernet, Sauvignon and Chardonnay. There's a region next to Rioja and Navarra, which has always made fantastic rosés from Grenache, red Grenache and other things. They made some reds as well. And I think at some point in the 80s, of the 90s, they decided that that wasn't sort of sexy and cool. They needed to be doing world-class wines. And that meant planting Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay. And they've grabbed up all the old stuff, which is goblet planted. And they, 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 they trained it all and didn't irrigate because there wasn't much need or there wasn't any availability of water. But if they could have done, they, they would have done it. And basically, I think it's, they're regretting it so much because in the end, that they're, they're, they're competing with, with the old school the French with the Baudelaire and, and the Burgundians at what they're doing and they're worse and with the New World guys and I guess it's it, I don't know if they're worse but this it's just people don't pay attention you know why would I drink a Chardonnay from from northern Spain when I can drink the, the real thing from from Burgundy or some fantastic equivalent from California or Australia or anywhere yeah so I think I think it's a mistake and I think that people recognize that now, yeah, and and people in Spain now that we're trying to foster the the, the varieties that we've always had, and they're good. So there's, there's well, some aren't that good, but there's some very good material there to work with, and I think that's what we've got to do. Yeah, and it seems like there's some good terroir. I mean, La Rioja Alta seems like yeah. I think there's some fantastic vineyards and, and terroirs, if you want to use that word, in in Rioja. We harvest, we actually harvest quite a bit of of, um, of vineyards. And some of it, I think, is very good. Some of it is not, and we recognize that. It goes into the, into the basic wine, which would be the Crianza. Year in, year in, you could see that, yeah. I guess that's how you recognize the good ones. Because in the end, you've had them for a long time, and you harvest them. And the ones that produce the better wines, you know that those are the ones and that we, you need to sort of foster and look after. In some cases, they don't even belong to us. They belong to, some, to, to a vigneron, you know, a farmer, which typically will be small properties, Maybe the guy doesn't even do the farming full time. He maybe he 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 has a day job, yeah. But he has a vineyard that the average holding in, in Rioja, I think, is about three hectares. So it's actually very small, and it doesn't require a lot of work. So maybe he has his day job somewhere, and he looks after the vineyards in the afternoons or in the weekends, and he brings us the fruit. And some of that, some of these guys, they, the fruit they bring us is is better than some of the stuff that we produce. But you know, we'd love to buy it if we could. You don't want to sell it. Um. But 
there's, I think there's some very good, there's some very, and we still need to find out much more about it. The thing about Rioja is that it depends how far back you go in time, yeah? But if you want to generalize, many of the Rioja wineries, certainly the, the historic ones, they have more in common, I think, with champagne houses than, say, somebody from Burgundy. Because in the sense that you, you had your own fruit, yes, and that would be a percentage of what you made. And the rest was the farmers that would bring you the fruit. And you made wines. In some cases, you would, you would do vintage wines from that vintage. In other cases, you would do sort of non-vintage or semi-non-vintage wines. Yeah? So, and I guess we, we, we still continue doing that with the crianzas that we do. It's made from the wine, the same wine every, it's made from each vintage, but you kind of search for a certain style, yeah? And sometimes we compensate. If it's a weaker vintage, you might pull in a bit of wine from, from another vintage. I'm not really supposed to say that. And the salespeople would kill me if I said that, if they hear me say that. They, it's all about, you know, the vintage. Well, I mean, like but, in Roberto de Duero, Vega Sicilia makes a non-vintage, they, for they, instance. And nowadays they tell you the, the vintages where it comes from. In the past, it's just, well, you know, it's what we had in the winery. that we built, And it's a fantastic wine, yeah. Um, but non-vintage champagne is made from several vintages and you, you, they look for a style. So, and I, I guess the good non-vintage champagnes should be pretty much the same every year. Yeah? You shouldn't get huge variation from one bottle to another. I guess that's what we strive for with the Crianzas. So you want something that tastes like Crianza from Cune. Exactly. Exactly. You want a style which is consistent. And some years are better than others, of course, and some are worse. But it should be within a certain bandwidth. It's never going to be extraordinary because if it was, then maybe we would bottle it as a reserver. You might ask for more money. You might say like, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're terrible at doing that. We're always about the quick sell. I think that's, but we're bad salespeople, Spaniards overall. I think. You mean Spaniards? Yeah, because yeah. You're, you're sitting on a fair amount of back vintages, I believe. I mean, But you know, the, the market has caught up with us and I don't really feel comfortable with that, you know, because we've always sold the wine quite mature. Yeah. And it's how I like it. You know, it's, it's, the, you know, it's ready for drinking. And now we're releasing wines that would be great if we had them in, 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 the, in the winery for a few more years. But time catches up with you, and in the end, you can't really do that all the time. But, um, but we need to learn from the Italians in terms of salesmanship. They do, and the French. You know, the Italians, when you talk to any Italian, they say they need to learn from the French. The French are the you ones. You know that, right? Yeah. But, and then when you go to the French, they're like, Madison Avenue, we need to learn from, you know. <laughs> like, not all French, you know, certain, certain pockets of the finer wine but business. you know but you go you go to asia you go to china or japan and france is the benchmark there's no question yeah then italy um and spain comes a distant third i think we need to do a lot of work there um but i guess the french have done it so well you know you, you, you it's hard to find sort of cheap not very good stuff from france i don't mean just in wine i mean overall yeah they have such great brands and houses that you assume that everything they make is good. Of course, it's not the case. Yeah? A ton of the wine they make in France and Italy comes from Spain in the first place. Half the exports, half the wine exports from Spain are in bulk. And I think maybe half of that or more than that goes to France and Italy. And once it's there, it becomes van de table or, or whatever. And I guess it's kudos to the French and the Italians yeah, that they, they do that so much better than we do. Because I think sometimes we here, far away, isolationist America, tend to think of France and Spain as very different, but you guys share a border, for instance. But, we, yeah, we, we are different. I guess we're all Latin, the Italians, French, and us, so we have that in common. 
but we're quite different. We, Spain was a super poor country. It was still comparatively much poorer than the French. But since we joined the European Union, we became much wealthier. But before then, the difference was abysmal. And the fact that the French have had restaurants for hundreds of years and Spain has had restaurants for maybe a hundred years and only in a few cities, we're leagues apart. Uh, and I think we have more in common probably with the Italians. Although we don't have, we don't share a border, yeah? but we have a, a much, we have a common past. We, we've... We have much more in common, yeah. But the kind of pride that Italians have is often a little sad. Like the way that they behave is a little, they, they seem a little sad about their legacy. Whereas the type of pride that Spanish people have is often oh, br- you, bravado. You, yeah, but you know, but we love to criticize ourselves and say, oh, we do everything badly. I'm doing it myself right now, yeah. <laughs> well, you're actually kind of the king of it. Of anyone I've ever met, like yeah. you're a pretty humble guy. Well, thank you, know? you but, but, but I think- a lot of Spaniards, not always that way. You know? You're right. We And I think that's, I suspect some of that is, is I wouldn't call it an, an, an inferiority complex, but there's something going on in their heads that says, you know, I have to tell, say that we're the absolute best to compensate for something. Something yeah. to prove, I think. Something to prove. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what we should do that. But I think the, the good thing that I like about how the Italians market themselves is that they market, they, they sell Italy, yeah? They're made in Italy. And it's the Italian flag. And then, then you, that, that's sort of the entry point. And then you can delve as much as you want. Yeah, you can go into Barolo, you can you can go really deep into something, or you can go the opposite and go into, into Sicily. And, but at least you have something. You have some common ground. Whereas in Spain, we're much more chaotic. You don't have that common ground normally. Some guy says, you know, I'm from Ribera del I'm from this village, and this is my winery, and, and and it's my name on the bottle, and this is me. Yeah. So the first thing is me. Then then it's me. Then it's then it's my dad. Then it's my village. Then it's my appellation. And then as an afterthought, yeah, it's, it's Spain. So it's the exact opposite, that the, what the Italians do. And I, I like the Italian model and it's one that I actually do. Yeah, I, when I present a wine to somebody, I say, well, you know, this is, I'm from Cune, we're from Spain. And if you look at our wines, they have the, the Spanish flag on them. Sort of our, our crest is the Spanish flag. You know, there's no, there's no aristocratic title because we, we have none. And there's no, this isn't, in Gaia and I'm Gaia and you know it's it's Cune, which stands for it's almost bland, yeah. It's wine company from the north of Spain. That's what Cune stands for in Spanish. So it's but I, I like that because it's anonymous. And now it's me rambling on about stuff to you, but maybe in 30 years it'll be somebody else from my family, and it will still be Cune, yeah. And hopefully they will still be saying, you know, Cune is a Spanish wine and Spain makes good things. And that, that's sort of the entry point. And so we start with Spain. And then we go down, we're from Rioja, and within Rioja we have a, a vineyard and a winery in Alo and a different one in Contino and so on and so forth, yeah. But we start from that base. Yeah. But uh, I guess the difference between Spain and Italy is that, at least in America, Italy has all these restaurants where people buy Italian wine, and in Spain there's not that many. And then they also have a, a lot of movies about, the, like... You're right. There's, and, and, and if you think about... I always use this example, yeah, but I can imagine somebody in... I don't know, in Chicago, walking into an Italian restaurant and they can imagine themselves in the Piazza Navona with their wife sitting on a Vespa or a Ferrari and wearing Ferragamo and, and buying some Acqua di Parma. And, and so there's so many sort of visual things that come to mind with, with brands mostly. Yeah? And with Spain, it's just so much harder. You know, you think of the bulls and... and Franco. And Franco <laughs> and the flies and the heat. And, you know? And, but, you know, but... 
to think of these things and say, oh, you know, I'm not successful because of Franco. Right, right, Honestly, right, I think that's right, nonsense. Yeah, right. you, you have nobody to, we need to get ahead and do stuff. And how many Italian chefs and, and fantastic Italian restaurants are there in, not just in the US, in New York, there's, there's, there's hundreds, yeah? How many French chefs come to the US and have, you know, the, the network of restaurants from, from New York to Las Vegas to DC, there's, there's, you can't count them the fingers of your hands, the Michelin star restaurants in, in the US with French chefs that have come here and they have the French flag in the neck, yeah? And, and they all say, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be doing a service to France. And they have tons of restaurants. And how many, how many Spanish chefs are there in, in, in the US? Not so many. Not so many. I mean, there are some good places, but they're, you but know. But the, the ones that are famous in Spain, the, the ones that have been successful in the US, they weren't famous in Spain. They, so they made their name here, so, which makes it even more uh, of a success. They came here and, and started from scratch and did their thing. But the ones that are famous in Spain... There's, there's several three Michelin star restaurants and chefs in Spain. Sure, Arzac. And- there's Arzac, there's Brasategui, there's Ferran Adrià, of course. Who's that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he doesn't even have restaurants in Spain, let alone the US. He's all washed up. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, there was, there's tons. And these, and these are great guys. Yeah? They're, they're not, they're not um, sitting on cloud nine doing nothing, but they just don't come to the US and do things. Or they don't have a... a you know, a protege that comes to the S in their name to do things. And well, like uh, Danny Garcia tried, right? He tried and didn't work out. But I, I, I still think we're behind. I don't know what fails there. Because the food is, is good, I think. You know, we, we, the whole tapas thing. Uh, Everybody's doing small plates except the Spanish restaurants in New York. Right? <laughs> <Is> it, <laughs> you know what I mean? But small plates, surely that makes sense. People, you know, they don't want to put on weight and they want to have some food when they're drinking and they're drinking more and... It, it makes perfect sense, but yet we haven't we haven't embraced that and and made it our our own. So we still need more work there. I think we need to draft some Spanish chefs into. We need to kidnap them, and bring them over to the US, and force them to to, to do something. It's the only way it's going to work, I think, because otherwise it doesn't fall flat. The, the the efforts that you do with the wine, but it needs something to to help you out. Yeah, and the 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 top French restaurants they have mostly French wine lists and the Italians have mostly Italian as you would expect yeah so we still need to do much more work there but again we're to blame for that as well if there was many many Spanish wineries being very successful that would help as well I think so we do what we can yeah we try to preach the gospel but something else that I have an issue with when I go to Spanish restaurants in the United States often is that when I look at the wine list all the reds are over 100 bucks with a few exceptions and then it makes it hard for me to really because I'm 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 poor and cheap uh, listen, hundred bucks is a ton of money to spend on a bottle of wine. Yeah, and in Spain, if you go to restaurants in Spain, you can buy a very good bottle of wine for fifteen, twenty euros in a normal restaurant. That is the standard. That's what, that's what you pay. And Spain will always have cheap, um, cheap wines because we ha- we have to export. Spain, I think, produces. Last year was more. Maybe this year, maybe we'll produce forty million hectoliters, and the consumption in Spain is nine million hectoliters. Oh, okay. So that's a big difference, right? So it's there. a huge difference. So we need to export a hell of a lot of wine. So you're always going to be able to find, I wouldn't say cheap, but yeah, affordable wine in Spain for a decent quality wine. So the wine is there. It's just a case of bringing it in front of people. And you're right. A lot of Spanish wines that I see in the US, they're either the super mega ultra premium level or they're dirt cheap and they're probably not great. And in between, and we have wines in between, we don't have wines at the very top. We don't have wines for a thousand bucks. Don't know if we would even know how to do that, yeah, or even sell that. I don't. I wouldn't feel. 
I want to feel comfortable selling something for that price. Uh, it's just not not what we do. Not that anybody would give us a chance to do that. But um, the trouble with Spain is that all the cheap stuff that comes out is all the cheap wine that we do. That's the trouble. So it's the same thing that Australians might say. Yellowtail ruins our image. I guess the Australians, at least the Australians are, are doing it in a, in a sort of corporate way. They're making money while they're doing it. You know, it's big corporations producing these brands like Yellowtail. In Spain, it's more chaotic. It's just, let's just sell it in, in, in bulk to somebody somewhere and they will take care of it. There's a couple of Spanish producers that are, that are actually very astute businessmen and they're doing huge volumes and they're selling their wine very cheaply throughout the world. And of course, everybody's free to do whatever they want. But I think it doesn't really help the image that we have and maybe it doesn't help the quality either because it's all about just the price. So for the wines that you make, is there a difference between what sells in Spain and what sells on the exports? Well, in the past, we would sell most of our wines in Spain because we just didn't care about exports. Yeah? I mean, you've got to speak English or... or God forbid, something else. And you need to go to the markets and... Meet some podcaster schmo. Meet, meet, <laughs> meet people and talk. And, and you know, they're going to pay you later than the guys in Spain. And all that is just, it's just a hassle to... Yeah, we, we were tremendously lazy uh, in the past. So we did, and we could sell everything that we could in Spain, which is nice, but it's, it's short-sighted and, and, and it's not how you should do things, I think. So... A few years ago, probably later than, than I should have done, we decided that we need to do more, more stuff outside of Spain. And what we're seeing now, which is curious, is that um, Spain is always going to be important for us. It's our domestic market. It's where people know us. And it has to be for us. Yeah. And I, I've, it's sort of one of the things that I say, you know, this is what people drink in Spain. They drink Cune white. Imperial or Vignorel, that's what they drink. Yeah? So if you want to drink like a Spaniard, drink some of these wines. That's sort of my thing. But what I'm seeing now is because we have the financial crisis started in the US in 2008. And I guess you guys, arguably, you, you, the worst days are behind you, I think. But in Spain, it started a bit later and we're still struggling. And I think that's going to continue. Now, unemployment in Spain, officially, is 25%, which is huge. Yeah? And youth unemployment in Spain from the ages of 16 to 20-something, I, I find it hard to believe, but the, the official statistic is that it's 50%. Five zero, which is so much grotesque. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I I struggle to believe that. But if that's the case, I think we're doomed. Yeah, this is the kind of thing you see in in Libya and, and Egypt, countries that are, that are going through massive turmoil. But be this as may, you know, whatever the right number is, Spain is not doing great, and and I think that will continue for some time. And there's a lot of people that are very hard up. So what what I'm seeing now is that. The regular wines that we make, the Cune Crianza, a bit of the Vigna Real Crianza, those were selling very well in Spain. And we'll continue to sell those in Spain because that's what people want to drink. And the more expensive things, such as Imperial and Contino and the higher end Vigna Reals, those are the ones that we're going to sell abroad. We're actually selling more Imperial now abroad than in Spain. That's the first. In our 130 odd years of history, that's the first time that's ever happened. So that's what I kind of see happening. Of course, so, I'm happy to sell Cune and, and, and Vigneral everywhere, yeah? We want everybody to know all our wines. But I'm seeing that happening. The, the, high, the better wines, the more expensive ones, those are the ones that people can afford to drink outside of Spain. Is there a difference in Spain in terms of the wines? Does Contino sell somewhere and Imperial somewhere else? Or No, not really. You know, we, we come from the north of Spain, from the wineries in Rioja. But our family, we're from the Basque country. So we've always felt very much at home in the Basque country, Bilbao and San Sebastian, which is good because it's 
a lot of restaurants. People like to eat and drink a lot. So it's a good place to be. And we're strong there, I think. We're strong in Madrid. We've always been there. We even had a bottling line in the center of Madrid about 100 years ago. It's, we're very prosperous back in those days. I think we did more things than we do now. We're very adventurous. But we'll continue doing that, you know, to be in those. In, touristy places we're not so good at. We didn't really focus on those. Again, we should have, because it's good to get the English and, and the, the Germans that are in Spain seeing our wines. Maybe they'll, they'll drink them back home. But we'll continue doing that. And the northern, the northern center of Spain, I think. Yeah. Wine-wise, what's the difference between Vino Real, Imperial, and Cantino? How are those different things? Okay. Well, Vino Real comes from the Alavesa region in Rioja. Okay? Oh, okay. So these wines, in, in our case anyway, they tend to be sort of more gastronomic, more, more savory, sort of fuller, if you can apply such a word, to a wine. They feel sort of bigger in the mouth. None of our wines are big in the sense that none of them are alcoholic and, and, and powerful and muscular. Yeah? It's more about harmony and balance. But they tend to, be, they tend to go better with the food. Yeah? They're more savory. They age very well. They come in a burgundy bottle, Vignorel. They always have done. I think it's not a, it's not a coincidence. The, the wines have a lot in common, over, especially with time, with, with, with burgundy wines, yeah? with, with burgundy reds. And when they age, they become, they become more similar. Yeah. I think it's it's not it's not incorrect to say that they're all different, of course, but there's the similitudes between both. Yeah. So that would be Vigneriel, and we've made that the first vintage is 1920. We started making it after a few years after we were founded. Has its own winery, its own vineyards, not that much. The majority of the fruit is bought in. Sadly, we don't have as much as we would like in terms of vineyards in in Rioja Alavesa. Did that project kind of get going in the 1920s in the after effects of Phylloxera in France, or yeah. how did that work out? Well. It, the way we started, and we started with the phylloxera crisis, and there's, there's some purists in Spain that will tell you that the good wine in Spain was made before the phylloxera crisis and the French influence. Everything that's made since. Well, those guys are hardcore, huh? It's, and it's like, well, you talk to these guys. Who, I wonder uh, what they buy, right. like in the market, you know? Right, exactly. I, I, I can appreciate the merit of your, theoretically, of your, of your philosophy. I think it, there's merit to it, but I think it's hard to prove because none of us have tasted Spanish wines from before 1870. You know, it's just... And, and have you tried wines from 1890? Because, you know, they're not bad. And so maybe it wasn't all bad, you know, the, the, the phylloxera crisis. People, I think they, they like to, they have their vision of history, yeah, and they like to adapt it to how they fit into that. It was always better in the past. Right. <laughs> Which is, in some cases, it's true. In others, of course, it wasn't, yeah. Uh, I'm sure they, the per capita in Spain in the 19th century was 180 liters. Oh, really? Per capita. Wow. Because poor country, the water was terrible. If you drank uh, water from the river, you would probably die within a week. You know, they had plagued and, and uh, so you, so people drank and people, most people worked in the countryside. They're, they're, they're poor and they couldn't afford to buy a lot of food. So wine was a source of, of nourishment and, and calories. So people drank three bottles of wine a day just, just to, you know, to, for, for the calories, yeah. And the alcohol level in those wines must have been very low. They were vinified quickly and they're probably fizzy. Yeah? That's the book most people drank. So, but anyway, back, I'm, I'm rambling. Back to our origins. With Vignorel, we started making it in the 1920s. We'd been making wine since 1879. That's because of the phylloxera crisis. So phylloxera comes from the, from the US over to Europe. Sorry. That's okay. I think we probably need, I apologize. We, we probably need another one now. I think. Oh, yeah. Seriously, I, people say, are you crazy? But if, if, we, if we, 
a phylloxera crisis that would wipe everything out, including my vineyards. I'm okay, yeah. And we start from scratch. Of course, we need we need a new a new thesis that would that would come in and, and, and fix things. But it might be it might be the right way because people don't. It's so hard to to get rid of vineyards that aren't good. It takes forever. Yeah. So a good phylloxera crisis wipe everything out and start from scratch. Yeah. And only plant in the good places. Don't overproduce. You know? <laughs> but anyway. Do they call you Noah in your own country? Has that, <laughs> that, that ever happened? Maybe I should, I should, be, I should be the, the, the doomsday guy. <laughs> Kuve apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Please continue. Um, yeah, I think the, the accountants back in Kune wouldn't be very happy with my theory of wiping everything out and starting from scratch. Or the fact that you're building an ark in one of the vineyards. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Also, they're like, why are you spending all why, this money why, on... Why are you doing that? Yeah, sense. we thought it was for bariques. What are you doing? <laughs> building an ark. Tearing up the bariques and making an ark, that's not what we... <laughs> um, but, so, Philoxtra, very slowly, starts wiping everything out. The French, they're the first to suffer it. So they come to Spain to make wine. And that is how we got started. It was my great, great grandparents, two brothers, Eusebio and Raimundo, Real La Sua, married to two sisters, which I think is a very civilized way of doing things. Yeah, it keeps, keeps the family reunions, I think, very... <laughs> yeah, don't have to invite that, right, that yeah. many people. If the in-laws, are, uh, there's no such thing yeah, so, <laughs> as in-laws. But anyway, they, they got started, as I think it was a business proposition. One of them, we had several civil wars in Spain in the 19th century particularly in the Basque country. After one of the last ones, a doctor advised one of the two brothers to move to a drier climate. And they said that Rioja was a good place to go. So he moved to Rioja. Um, he saw what was going on with the phylloxera issues in France. So he decided, he called his brother and they decided to, to start the winery. They brought in another partner who left after a while and they started Cuna and they started making wine. And that's how we all got started. Lopez, they started at the same time. We all started at that time. The first wines that we made were Cune, just the regular Cune wine. And we, to this day, in Spain, we still call it Cune Clarete. Clarete from Claret, from wine from the Medoc. So it was made in that style. Yeah? Nowadays, of course, the, the style of Medoc has changed very much. But it was, that was the idea. Wine with lengthy barrel aging, made for the long term. These wines were made only in the winery in Ado. And I think the, they wanted to do different things. They had a vineyard called... Camino Real, the hotel people in Mexico, they always want for that. But, um, and it became Viña Real, yeah? So that's how it got started, yeah? Nowadays, we had a very small winery in El Ciego uh, where we vinified. We still have the winery, but we had no space for the barrels and for the bottling. So we did that at the, at the Cune winery in Aro, yeah? So the very old bottles of Viña Real from the 20s and 30s, they're, they're still in Aro. I don't want to move them. They're at the right place. I just want to say, for the record, you're a master of not saying the H. The silent H is... Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive because, you know... I was, I'm next, now I'm going to start saying them. I no, was, no. I wasn't conscious I'm, of that. I'm impressed because <laughs> I, you know, I, I always well, say Haro, you know. Well, as, as you would in English. Yeah, so... But, but we don't... In, in Spain, you don't... They're silent, so... But sometimes when I'm trying to be very English, I will... The H's will come out. But anyway, so that's Vigna Real, yeah? Sometimes I call it Spanish, yeah. you know, because I don't say the final... No, I'm <laughs> just joking. Well, anyway, so that's 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 um, Vigna Real. And about at the same time as we made Vigna Real in the 20s, we made Imperial in Aro. And the idea behind Imperial, the first vintage was, I, I'm not even sure, we have bottles of 1917. So I guess that, that must be the first one. Yeah, we might have done it beforehand, but we don't have any. We have records 
And at some point I need to go through them and read them. But um, we don't have bottles from Imperial older than 1917. We have bottles of Kune. The oldest we have is 1880. I encourage anybody that's listening to come and see us, by the way, in Rioja. Uh, we, we like to do that. That was a nice people. one, too. <laughs> like, we have old bottles back to the 19th century, and you should come visit. We don't open them, but, but you could see them. <laughs> How's that for a shame? You can, you can touch the bottle. In. But um, So anyway, Imperial. The idea behind Imperial is to make, I wouldn't say a super cuvee, but to make the best wine that we could. I think that's probably the correct way of doing it. In the 1890s, we were bottling about 80,000 bottles of um, Kune every year which to us seemed like quite a lot. So the idea is, how do we make a smaller amount of a better wine? Of course, that's what everybody does nowadays. But I guess back then, people didn't really focus too much on that. Yeah. So we decided to make Imperial. And the difference, I think, between, to answer your question from a while ago, the difference between the Vignorel and the Imperial would be that Imperial is more typical of Rioja Alta in the sense that it's leaner, perhaps more austere. The vineyards are higher up. It's colder. The soil for the... In Ural, it has more clay in it. In Rioja Alta, it has more limestone. Whatever the cause may be, the wines are more acidic. That's not to say they age better or worse. I guess if Vignoral is more Burgundian, Imperial would be more old-style Bordeaux, in the sense that they're less flattering when young. Or at least back in the day, I think that was the idea. Yeah? you got to give that limestone some time to soften up in the bottle. I'm saying this, but then you you taste the the 2007 Imperial and it's super flattering and super pleasant. So yeah, but a lot of guys are here talking about their 11th, not their sevenths. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and th- they are more acidic and and perhaps somewhat less flattering at the beginning. So I guess that, that it's all nuances. You know, all the wines are made in the same the same way. Uh, we vinify for not too long, three four weeks. We don't search for extraction. Uh, we pick it about. We pick when the fruit is ready. And for us, that means about 13% alcohol. We don't go for super maturity. 13% is absolutely fine. 13 and a bit. Yeah, That's how it's always been. You talk about climate change and in Bordeaux, how the alcohol level has gone up and they don't need to chapitalize anymore. We haven't really seen that. You know, if you drink from your hours from, from back in the days and in your alcohol is 13, 13 plus. Same, same as now. Is that an elevation thing? It might be, yeah. Last year, we finished 2013 harvest beginning of December. So... Even nowadays, it takes us. We started late and we finished super late. And this year, we're still we're still harvesting right now. So, gives a different definition to both Halloween and Christmas, right? And so everything's jumbled up together. Yeah, <laughs> it's all one big nightmare because you know that when you're harvesting so late, then it's because you haven't had great weather. You, haven't, you just can't find the right moment to pick. You're waiting and you're waiting, and it starts raining. <laughs> this year is actually going to be a difficult harvest, I think. Well, it's going to be a harvest of two halves. The first one was good. The second one is going to be not so good. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to figure out what to do there. I've heard that from a lot of people, about 14, in terms of Europe. Yeah. It was, it was looking good, and then it started to rain a lot throughout Europe. But anyway, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, makes it more interesting. So those would be the differences, I think, between Imperial and Vignoreal. They both spend a long time in barrel. The winemakers, are the, the person in charge of winemaking is the same. It's Maria, Larea. And then we have Contino, which, again, is made in the same style with quicker vinification, malolactic fermentation in used barrel or in cement. Is that, is that oh, right? yeah, you do so, mallow and cement? Yeah. That seems like that would be difficult. It works okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, How big is that? Like Tanks from 10,000 liters to 25, more or less. We have all the sizes. Oh, 
But it works okay. Yeah. 25,000 liters? Yeah. And you do mallow on that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it works okay. Yeah. I mean, in all, we have everything. You know, we have stainless steel, we vinify in oak, used oak, we vinify in, in concrete tanks. We use everything, yeah? So it's how we've always done it. Not, not, not the stainless steel, obviously, that started in, in the 70s. But the rest we've used before. And it's good to use them all the time. We use a lot of barrel aging, two to three years. So Contino, we follow those, those same procedures. But Contino is a single estate. It's about 60-odd hectares. It's very near Vigna Real. It's in Rioja Leveza as well. It's a horseshoe. It's very flattering on the eye because it's very pleasant to look at. It's a large property by Rioja standards. It has a small slope. It's alluvial. So it, it reminds people sometimes of Chateauneuf du Pape because it has all these sort of pebbles. And it's a bit of a saucepan in the sense that it, it grabs a lot of heat. Yeah, it's, it's always the first one that starts harvesting. It's one of the first single estates in, in northern Spain, although it's quite new. It was founded in, first vintage is 1974. It's 40 years this year, actually. I and like it, your concept of new. Well, it's quite new. <laughs> Four decades, older than you, young man. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but, but I guess I guess after 40 years, you do have some kind of track record. But I, th- I still see it as relative. It, it is young. You know, you need a lot of time, I think, to to find the the. And now we're replanting a lot of a lot of the property because a lot of the vineyards are quite old, and we're trying to figure out what to plant. So it's not a given. Yeah, it's a given when you've been around for two hundred years. You know, you don't decide what to plant in in Musigny. You know exactly what you should plant and how. But but here we're still learning that. So so in that sense, it is new. I think. But no Cabernet for you. No, no, no. We've we've never had any, and it doesn't. Thankfully, now we don't even have the temptation to try and emulate what they do elsewhere. I think, in that sense, Burgundy has been—I wouldn't say a lifesaver—but it's helped us out so much. At least us, Cune, because it's made it okay to not be alpha male, muscular, over the top. And I remember my first trips to the U.S. maybe ten years ago. We had different importers and different distributors. But I guess, you know, people say, you know, your labels are all wrong. <laughs> they look terrible. They look old. You need something more modern. And the wines, you know, they're all wrong as well. They're too old. And, and how much Cabernet do they have? None. So, well, that's all wrong as well. So we're doing everything wrong. Yeah. Those guys are first against the wall when the revolution comes, my friend. <laughs> like those guys. Those I guys ruined a I lot of stuff for I a lot of people. In my, little, in my little black book that I haven't written down. But, but I guess... You know, they, they, they told us what, what made sense commercially at the time, yeah? Right, sure. They're trying to sell wine. They're trying to sell wine. I said, listen, this is, this is a hard sell. Nobody wants this stuff, yeah? And, and they were right. Nobody want, even in Spain, they didn't want that stuff. Mm-hmm. When I started at Cune, to sell Viña Real Gran Reserva in a restaurant in Madrid was terminally unfashionable. You, you, be, you would be going nowhere, unless it happened to be a sort of old school restaurant that, you know, old people would go to. But isn't that a narrative we hear a lot about Spanish wine? Like, oh, those are the grandfather's drinks or yeah, exactly. it's the, the rich guy wearing like an open shirt with no tie, like Versace guy. You know, like it's one or the other. It's like, right. oh, that's what the great grandparents drunk and it's associated with old people or it's like Mr. Flashy that's in, right. in the convertible. But that's right. there's nothing for regular people. Nothing in between, yeah. Now now people, I think with the crisis in Spain, they think it's okay to drink what their father drank. I see. Luckily for us. Which because is why, the fathers didn't cause the crisis. Like the old, <laughs> right. like the, the, you know what I mean? That's right. Like they weren't, they weren't to blame and they said, well, maybe dad was, was okay guy off. Maybe all. he was an okay guy. <laughs> he didn't <laughs> screw all. up the economy like these guys did. You that, know? Right. Even if he didn't drive a, a Mercedes, he, he was still okay. So I think those things are very related in the States. 
You like think, when yeah. people are like, oh, let's go back to the 1920s. Or like, oh, you mean before like people screwed everything up or like that kind of thing? You know, yeah, I, so, yeah, yeah but, but, but maybe. Well, certainly, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a lot of people in the US that are really interested in our wines and what like they like. Levy Dalton. Like Levy, he's, he's a great guy. Yeah. But, but I think that's fantastic because it means it, it saved our life. Yeah, it means it's okay to do what we do. Yeah. And you uh, think and, it might have folded otherwise. Like it potentially could have been a downward spiral you one day couldn't get out of. Probably, yeah. I mean, we, uh, what would have happened, I think, is just we would have sold the wines in Spain badly. And we would have, you know, trodden along. It, it, wineries are like newspapers. It takes forever to close them. And there's wine regions in Spain that have been in crisis for over 100 years. I mean, look at Sherry, Jerez. If you pick up a newspaper from... Cadiz or from Seville from 90 years ago. It's, it's interesting. It's funny. You can see articles on, you know, the, the, the sherry crisis. Where will it end? Yeah, this is from 90 years ago. They were in crisis 90 years ago and they're still around. So I think it's hard. You don't disappear. You, sort of, you fade out. Yeah. Like one of those poems. You, you just, you slowly, slowly, and it takes a long time. But it's like the bars in, in, in Madrid and in Spain. If you go to Spain, you see these bars everywhere and they don't close, even if they're not very good. Because the, the business model was you work somewhere and you retire and with your savings, you buy a bar or you buy a, a chunk of commercial real estate and you open a bar. Uh, so it's yours. So you, you're not paying any mortgage or rent. You don't have employees. It's you at the bar, the wife in the kitchen and your son cleaning the tables. So you, you basically have slave labor. You don't pay them. You only buy what you need. So you can really survive on, on practically nothing, even, even if you have very few clients. And I guess with us, that similar thing could happen. And that's, what, that's probably what would have happened to us. And in fact, thinking a bit about this, maybe that's the reason there's so many family wineries in Spain. Maybe that's the reason we're still around. Because the Bordelais, as soon as they make a ton of money, they sell it and somebody else buys it. Yeah, it's a trophy. And then it gets flipped again 10 years later. And it gets later. flipped because somebody pays them. They think they don't want to sell it, but somebody offers them five times what they think it's worth. So reasonably as well, they think, well, how can I not sell it? I'll, I'll, I, they sell it. And whereas in Spain, because none of us have been sufficiently successful to die or to sell it, we just continue. It's not a very flattering way of looking at it, but I guess it's the reason we have these old vintages from the past because we didn't sell them. And nobody wanted to buy them. If it was DRC, of course, it would have been sold because you, you wouldn't be able to resist the temptation. But of, of course, it. DRC also had problems for a long time. Like it wasn't Parker's favorite wine, for instance, to put it mildly. You know what I mean? That's Ooh. right. And it's nowadays, uh, Burgundy has saved the DRC as well, not just us. <laughs> what is the ownership model in Rioja? It's not static, I don't think, right now. It, it's moving along. In the past, you had maybe five to ten wineries, such as Kune. And these were... Of that size. Of, of, similar size. Of yeah. what you might call moderately big. Yeah. Lopez, somewhat smaller than us, slightly. Rioja Alta, similar size. Riscal, probably bigger at one point, maybe, I don't know. So, yeah, so sort of mid-sized. That was the model in the past, yeah? You, you would buy in fruit, you would make your own. You had a lot of people moving barrels. It was not a, a, a garage, it wasn't a, um, a burgundy domain, it was bigger than that. So, yeah, so with people running around moving barrels, a lot of barrels around the place. Yeah? You see the pictures with, with 50 people in them. You know? <laughs> That's what it was like. Then, in the 70s, you had big sort of commercial groups going to Rioja and making big properties and arguably killing a lot of the good things at the same time. And yeah. why do you think they did that? 
because they recognized that the good wine from Spain, the perception of the good wine from Spain came from Rioja, that there was a business there, there was an opportunity. They said, why, why are we making wine in, in Jerez and Sherry or in the middle of Spain? Let's go to Rioja. That's a good name. Yeah? If we make it there, we can sell it more expensively. So they did that and they grew a lot. And Rioja expanded massively in, the, in that period. And in fact, the largest winery in, in Rioja right now is it belongs to Pernod Ricard. Oh, is that true? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a collection of wineries. Things like Campo Viejo belongs to Pernod Ricard. And it's very large. And, uh, and it, it's part of the, of the number one and number two, number three, I don't know, uh, drinks multinational in the world. So to think that Rioja belongs to, to Spaniards or belongs to mid-sized uh, wineries, well, it's, it's not really the case anymore. It's the biggest one. It belongs to a multinational, a French multinational. So, so there's that, and there's, there's large companies there as well. There's uh, two big players from middle of Spain that have showed up recently in Rioja, and they're doing big volumes. I wouldn't name them because I think they have sufficient publicity as it is. <laughs> and then what we're seeing now as well. So it's a, it's a, there's, there's no model as such. There's a lot of things going on at the same time. And there's also, I think this is very good, small properties made by locals, by Rioja people. Abel Mendoza, for instance. Great wine from the Alta Alta region of, of Rioja. Yeah? Made in small amounts. He's a vigneron. He has his vineyard. He probably sold his, his fruit in the past People like Kune, not in this case, fortunately, because I'm sure it's very good fruit. And at some point he decides, you know, why do I sell the fruit? Why don't I make it myself? So they start making their own wines. And typically they will start with something less ambitious. And as they learn to make wine, they, they make better wines. And there's, there's quite a few of these, and they're very good wines. They're, they're, they are terroir wines. They're, they might use the, the traditional Rioja method of Crianza Reserva, Gram Reserva, but it's not the driving element. Yeah, the driving element is, is the property. And I think Contina to some degree fits that bill, although it's part of us. In a sense, Contina, it's not important, I think, if it's Reserva or, or not. It, it is Reserva because that's, because it, commercially it helps you, and I guess, but it's not what counts. And these properties, are, 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 there's more and more of these. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And I guess that's pretty much it. But what I've said covers pretty much the spectrum, you know, from the multinationals to, to everything in between to the, to the tiny guys. And that will continue because I think Rioja is still big and people still haven't, some people know their, their vineyards very well, but others don't. And they're still sort of finding their way. Yeah. So you will see these wines coming into the US, hopefully. Yeah. The, the, the sort of smaller, the, the smaller wineries with an interesting proposition. Um, those are the ones... Probably, I wouldn't say that it's the future of Rioja, but they certainly make it much more interesting. In the past, Rioja's had a long history of Crianza Reserva, Grand Reserva. How many of these new producers really have had the time to make Grand Reserva? They probably don't bother with Grand Reserva because it's, it's a nuisance. You've got to keep the wine in barrel for two years and then bottle for three years. They probably wouldn't bother. They might, and I think what counts about Grand Reserva is not so much the, the legal prerequisite, you know, the three is in bottle. Doesn't, of course, the wine, if it's good, it will benefit from the bottle. But in, in and of itself, it doesn't make the wine better. Yeah? I mean, the wine will be the same before you bottle it as after you bottle it. So it, it's, not, does, it's not an improver of the wine, it's just a vessel. So they might think, you know, I'm making a, a Grand Reserva style wine, and, and, you know, maybe it doesn't have Grand Reserva, but it's, it's the idea that it's a wine made to, to last, built to last. And maybe that's what you see happening. Because ultimately, I mean, right now we can't release, we're selling 2008 Grand Reserva now. I think it finishes very soon. 
but we can't release the 2009 until next year, until sort of mid next year, which isn't necessarily such a bad thing, but it's a financial hindrance for a company. It has to be. It, it's a financial hindrance, you know, especially for a smaller guy that is that is just doing that. So what, what do you mean? I have no sales for the next six months or eight months, ten months? I mean, why is that? Yeah, and yeah, it's just it's it, it doesn't really help. So you you might I don't I hesitate to say this, but the trouble is when people just sell Grand Reserva. You see that a lot wines that are just Rioja Grand Reserva, and and the winery isn't important because the guy what he wants to do is just just to have the Grand Reserva sort of title. Sure. The trouble with, with the, the appellation, maybe this can't be fixed, I don't know, but, but it's, it's, it's impossible to, to taste every wine that is made. But really, you can make Grand Reserva with really bad quality fruit. There's no requirement that says that fruit has to be good or has to be made in a certain way. All that it says is, it's got to be in barrel for two years and bottled for three years, but it could be junk. So in a way, it might be better to sit on your junk and, instead of trying to sell it right away, because then if you sat on it for a few years... You could sell it. You could sell it as Grand Reserva a little easier than if you tried to release it right away. Totally. And the same with Reserva. Reserva, this is boring. It's boring even for us. And we have meetings and we forget. So what was it again? Two years or three years? So even we get confused. <laughs> so if anybody says, you know, I don't quite understand the classification. Listen, don't worry. Nobody does. Yeah. Um, in the end, what, what should count is the actual, the name on the, on the bottle. That's the, what should count. The producer yeah. and the vineyard. Yeah. So as a rule of thumb, if all you see is Rioja and Reserva or Grand Reserva, maybe it's not great. It's the producer that should count. Because really to do a Reserva, you could keep the wine in, Reserva means minimum one year in barrel and a further two years in barrel or in bottle. So you could have junk in barrel for a year, bottle it, leave it there for two years, still junk, it's probably worse, and sell it, and it's Reserva. So, you know, that's, it's, it's, Am I allowed to say bullshit? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's you guys have different names for bulls over there, right? <laughs> but I, I don't think I don't have many people do that. But I'm sure some do because you see some wines at ridiculous prices in supermarkets, and, and I'm sure they're not they're not very good. But but I mean, how do you fix that? You know, it's hard. In the end, what counts is what we talked about before. It's the name that counts. You should you should rely on the name, not on the classification that it has. That's not so important. Guide. Let's talk about grape varieties for a second. Mm-hmm. What should I know about Tempranillo? What's it like to grow? Tempranillo is, is the major variety in Rioja. And as a rule of thumb, it's the one to focus on, I think. It's the one you're going to see most of. And Tempranillo, it, it's hard to pinpoint because it changes a lot. You can make white wine with Tempranillo if you pull the skin as soon as possible. So it's, I guess, the defining character. It's, it's lighter than, than Bordeaux varieties. Harvests soon, sooner. It's quite hardy. You can plant it pretty much in any hot climate and it'll be okay. It's not as, as, as fickle as a ash or a grisana or anything else. So it's, it's quite hardy in that sense. The typical, when it's young and when it's made to show the fruit, you have this sort of the, the red berries and the, sort of the red fruits. But what I like about it is when it, it suits itself, I think, to barrel aging. Grenache, perhaps not so much. doesn't benefit so much from a lot of oak. But Tempranillo, in our, at least what I, in my perception, is that it does. It benefits a lot. It, it likes wood. Not necessarily new wood, but being in wood for a long time. Yeah? And I guess that's it. You know, it's harder to pinpoint that more than that because it changes so much. And you can see super concentrated, delicious Tempranillo is made by modern producers. And you can see really 
sort of vinous and, and thin ones made by Lopez, for instance. Yeah, you have it's capable of both extremes, so it's very versatile in that sense as well. Is that a clonal thing? Is that like Brunello to Sangiovese, or I don't know, maybe because you see Tempranillo, of course, in in Ribera, it's Tintafina, it's it's evolved as as that, yeah, and it's and they're completely different. That's sort of dark and brooding in, in Ribera. And you see it in southern Spain, but that's not the best place to see it. I, I don't think that's where it shines most. I was, I was stunned to read somewhere last weekend that Tempranillo is one of the most planted varieties in the world. It's overtaken Grenache and many others. I wonder if it's just Spain. I mean, maybe it's, it's being planted somewhere else. I don't know. It's mostly Spain, I'm sure. But I don't think it's suited to all Spain. Yeah, I think some parts of Spain, particularly hotter places, they'd be better off with Grenache, Grenache which probably. of course comes from Spain. Or Mataro, maybe. Yeah. And Carignan, which we call Mazuelo in some parts of Spain. Those are the ones that are best suited to, to, to really hot climates. So central Spain, I think. But Tempranillo, we work with it and, it and it works okay for us. And it, it's easy to work with. Doesn't, we try not to work it too much at the winery, to move it too much from one barrel to rack it too much. We don't like to do that too much because it, it, it can lose its color quite quickly because it's not so concentrated. But it ages well. That's a defining characteristic as well. If you, if you work it properly, it can age very well. It can age magnificently. I remember reading Matt Kramer about it, and he said Tempranillo could kind of get into this zone where it just coasted for decades, mm. you know, or, whereas others would either oxidize or, or change more. Tempranillo would get would mature, 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 and then just plateau and go into this long plateau. That's right. I think it matures quick. Well, you look at the wines. You look at the good Riojas, and they, they will mature sooner than than good clarets, than good cru classe from Bordeaux, then they, they, they plateau for a long time. And well, you've seen these, some of these wines from the 50s and 60s that they slow down and they, they evolve very gracefully and very nicely. That's sort of our thing. Yeah, if, if I had one thing that I wanted people to remember about our wines is that they stand the test of time, which ultimately you could say is the only test that counts, quoting Martin Amis. But I read an article, an interview with him a few months ago. I read all his stuff when I was in my 20s. I said, I'm not reading that again because it's too destructive. But I keep coming back to it. I like him a lot. I like, his, I like Kingsley as well, his father. But it was an interview in a New York newspaper from a few months ago. And they asked him, so Martin, what do you think about, who, who do you read nowadays? He said, I only read the dead. And I liked that. You know, it's like, I thought, well, maybe I could use that for the wine. I only drink the dead. <laughs> it seems a bit morbid. Um, but his point, and I, I totally agree, is that time is the only thing that counts. Yeah. So his, his point is, I only read stuff that has stood the test of time. The time has proven that it's good. And you could apply that to novels, to literature, to wine, and to buildings. If it doesn't stand the test of time, then maybe it's not good in the first place. Yeah? And with our wines, that is the test that I want them to be subject to. Is it going to be good in 30, 40 years? Is it going to be better? Yeah? And that is the thing to look out for in our wines. And Tempranillo helps us with that because it does age. Yeah? And what about Tempranillo as a reflector of terroir? How does it do with that? I guess the fact that it's a lighter variety probably helps with that. Yeah? I don't have experience working with Merlot and Bordeaux varieties that are, that are sort of powerful stuff. But I think lighter varieties tend to reflect the, the terroir better because they, they can be much more nuanced. Yeah? And they can reflect the climate and the soil quite and I, think, I guess we have the example ourselves, the ones that I know best are the ones that we make with, with Contino. And Contino, Imperial, and, and Vigneral, they're all based on Tempranillo. And they're all different wines. Of course, you can recognize 
they, they have a lot of things in common. But um, they do reflect where they come from. Maybe not as much as Pinot Noir and Burgundy, which arguably really pinpoints exactly yeah, the, the Premier Crew or the Grand Crew from whichever village in the continuity it comes from. In our case, we haven't got to that, but maybe because we don't know our vineyards as well as they do. Or maybe as well, because some of the wines that we make, the Imperial and the Vignoreal, they are not Torah wines. Maybe I, I should have started with that. And they're not. They're made from the specific plots that we know and we harvest ourselves. But with Imperial and with Vignoreal, we search for a, a style. That's, that's the thing, you see. And Torah people, I think they have problems with that. They think that's not authentic. You know, I want the Torah warts and all, good or bad. I want it to, and in our case, we, we, the Imperial is not the same every vintage, of course, um, but it follows, you could see the wine, it has a consistency in, in taste and in style. Now, and that is what we want. That, that is what I want. And if, if that doesn't work for you, then then I'm, I'm sorry, but that, that is what we want with these wines. Yeah, to be, Contino is different. Contino will tell you what is there, what, what is produced by the land. So I guess I would, I would find it harder to explain it in, in other words, but it, it can replicate the Torah to a certain degree if that, that, if that is what you search for. Yeah? And we only do it in, with, I guess we only need to do it, do it really with, with the Contino. And there we do see it. We, we need to do much more work and much more, much more work in terms of, of vineyard work, you know, different properties, different parcels, different blocks and so on, without getting too confused and without confusing the drinkers. But that would be something to do for the future, I think. And what about yields? How does Tempranillo yield? Does it? Well, Rioja Appellation, I think this is a good thing. They have a limit on yields. The law in Rioja is 6,500 kilograms per hectare. Yeah? So that translates at about, in, I'm terrible with math, but um, at, a, at a 70% conversion into liters. So that would be about a bit less than 50 hectoliters per hectare. Yeah. Don't ask me in acres because I don't know how to divide that by 2.5. But so the yields are relatively, they're limited at a not too high level. Yeah. So it's in Bordeaux, you can get 10,000 kilograms, no problem. And a lot of people do. We don't have as much rainfall. So it's good to have a limit. And again, this is one of these things that people debate endlessly in Spain. How can you do that? How can you have a, a rule of thumb for everybody? Some people have, should have less, some people should have more. But I think it's good to have a limit. Otherwise, people would just irrigate and produce much more. Yeah? I think having a, a thumb that sticks out is helpful. It, it's as, helpful. As a human being. Exactly. And you can do whatever you want below that, yeah? <laughs> so limit is 6,500. I definitely don't think you should go beyond that because then, then the, the fruit is diluted and it's just not good. Good vineyards will yield maybe half that. Contino, the yield is about 3,000, and that's a good place to be, I think. For the whites, the yield is 9,000 kilograms, which is probably too high, the maximum. For good quality whites, you should be talking half that, I think, at, at most. And a lot of times those wines, frankly, taste washed out. I mean, I there are amazing examples, but a lot of times what's missing is the texture, right? That's right. And it doesn't, it's not about having you know, more stuff put together. Yeah? It's not about making it more intense. But if if, the, if if you're producing so much, then it's just, it's washed out. Sometimes you get the opposite. You get alcoholic wines that are diluted and it, it's an awful thing to drink. Yeah? Not a pleasant experience at all. But I guess that, that's a good yield to have. Th the 3,000, 3,000 plus, that's, that's a good place to be. And it, ideally you would achieve it without pruning too much, yeah? without torturing the plant too much. So sometimes I don't know because 
I feel like I can rattle off the vintages in other regions quite well, whether it be Bordeaux, Burgundy, Barolo, mm. even Napa. I can tell you what the good years were, I think, or at least what they were like. Mm. With Rioja, it seems to be a kind of a hole in my mind. Well, here's the thing. As Again, we keep talking about rules of thumbs and thumbs, but Bordeaux in the past, what was good and bad in Bordeaux probably worked in Rioja as well. Oh, okay. So 82 sort of the, the famous year in Bordeaux, good for us as well, great for us. Yeah, also very famous, very important. 1970, 1959, th- these years in Bordeaux were good for us as well. The bad years in Bordeaux, because they were wet, like 97, 92, 93, it was, it was wet for us as well, because we were actually quite close to Bordeaux. Yeah? We had the, the tail end of the Pyrenees that separate us, but by car, it's a four-hour drive. So it's not completely different. The Atlantic influence that they have, we have as well. We have an Atlantic influence, certainly in Aro. I think now that might be a bit different because I do think that Bordeaux wines have changed quite a bit from maybe even as much as 20 years ago. Yeah. They, they I just see them much more international and much more ripe. Yeah. So maybe it's, it's useful to have the Bordeaux comparison in bad years. If it's bad for them, it's almost certainly bad for us as well. But they're fantastic years, you know, the 2005 and 2009, they're okay for us, but I guess they weren't as, as amazing. So historically use Bordeaux as a reference. More recently, 14 is going to be a tale of two stories, a tale of two halves, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. 13 for us was bad. We do our own classification. There's a Rioja classification. But again, that a classification for 60,000 hectares, by definition, can't be very precise. It's too vague. But again, you've got to help consumers give them some, some idea, yeah? But anyway, 2013 for us was, was bad. We won't make any grand reserve of that year. And we'll see what we end up making in the end. 12 and 11, very, very dry years, huge droughts. The wines are okay. 10 wasn't bad. I guess the last... Is there a wine that you like that you made? <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Is there a vintage that's happened that you liked? They're, they're all bad. Don't bother drinking any of them. <laughs> no, I think the last sort of classic hard vintage, I think was probably 2004. Oh, okay. That was great. And 2001. 2001, everything was good. The Creanza was amazing. We could have made everything. We could have made... It could have all been Reserva upwards. It was a great vintage. And before that, what, like 94, 96? Six, 95, 96, 94. Those three years were very good. Yeah. Three and two were terrible. Four, five, six were amazing. From the 80s, I like 87 a lot. I like 81. 81 a lot. Cool. Yeah. That's a, that's a great year. 82, of course. But maybe 81 is better. You said 84. No. Did I say 84? Oh, no. Okay. No. You said 87. 87. Just testing you. But I, <laughs> but I think, but, but you know, I like 87 because I was 13, 87. That's when you, you start... You meet girls and stuff like that. And, and then you're like, hey, I got a big seller. You want to come over for a while? But not really, but it was such a magical year for me, just in and of itself, that I think everything was good about 87. So we maybe, call that summer of 69 here in this country. We have exactly. a phrase for that. So my summer of 69 was, was 87. So, But the wines are nice. And I had some last night, the Mural 87. It was, it was drinking very nicely. But the good thing I think also about, so this, I remember we did a tasting, Imperial, with some Spanish with the young breed of Spanish journalists about five or six years ago. And that was really the turning point for us, I think. Because before then, you know, it was nobody wanted Grand Reservas and it was that it was that kind of that kind of phase, yeah. In Spain or anywhere else. And these are really young journalists. A lot of them weren't even professional journalists. They they had a day job, but they did it because they loved wine. And they they knew some of our wines, but I guess not not too well. And we organized a tasting and we did about twenty five vintages of Imperial. And the feedback that we were getting at first, we had emails going backwards and forwards, yeah? And very politely, they were suggesting, you know, 
guys, you know, those vintages aren't really famous. Can't, can't we have any of the famous ones? Like, oh, know, yeah? Can we have the 64? Oh, before the tasting happens. Yeah, yeah. They were sort of saying, they wow, like, snobby bitches, you yeah. know, these guys. <laughs> They're very polite about it. You know, yeah, some guys yeah. have, have asked, you know, would it be possible right, to have right. the 64 and the 70 and the 59? And, and, and I said, guys, you know, just trust us on this. Yeah. You know, try the rest. Even we've the bad this. years. We've done this before. Try the, the years that aren't well known. And their conclusion at the end, so thank you for showing us the vintages that we didn't know of, you know, the 76 and the 78 and the 81 and the 80 even, because um, we loved them as well. So it's not a case, so in that sense, it's even vintages that aren't great, with time, they turn out to be okay in Rioja. So that's a good thing to bear in mind. That, that's my commercial, that's my commercial uh, punt for the, for the day. You know, try the, the vintages that, that aren't famous, because you might be pleasantly surprised. Victor Yurutia of Kune, he's taking a long view and he thinks Rioja is going to be all right in the end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Levy. Victor Yurutia of Kune. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.